Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William H.A. Coldwell, and this week's episode is another insightful interview, this time with Todd Komaniki. He's a writer, director, and producer based in New York City, known for writing Elf, Sully, and The Professor and the Madman. We started our discussion off with Todd's path into becoming a writer, getting feedback, and screenwriting as a craft. Then, as is 21st Rewrite tradition, I wanted to center the discussion around a single screenplay, and we chose Sully as our main subject, so the second half of our conversation is largely about that project, what Todd did to turn a real-life event into a compelling narrative, the responsibilities he had towards the real person who the story was based on, and the themes of everyday heroism, man versus bureaucracy, and the impact that Clint Eastwood had on the film. Next week, I'll be back with another solo Writer's Workshop episode, and I truly hope you are enjoying the new format with alternating Writer's Workshops and insightful interviews. If you are, and you would like to support the podcast even more, you can join me on the new social media podcasting platform Syncify and join the post-episode discussion, or follow me on Instagram at the21stRewrite. And if you are a new listener... I hope you enjoy today's conversation and do join the 21st Rewrite again for more screenwriting and storytelling discussions. So without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. Nice having me. Um, I, I really like your accent. Is, is, it, is it real or is it uh, just to make you sound like a more important podcaster? <laughs> no, it's uh, completely real, although it is affected by the fact I've lived outside of the UK for quite over about 10 years now. So that has led to English people saying I don't sound English anymore. Sure. But still in America, I do come across as very English. America, in America. Uh, the, the legitimacy with which we immediately deem the English accent as equated with intelligence is uh, really the reason that I'm going to do this podcast, because you sound (laughs) smart. Everybody is uh, in love with the British accent in America. I think in in our guilt-ridden DNA for for having abandoned England 300 years ago, we we still feel bad about it. So when we we hear your accents, we just give over. Yeah, and I I think um, the best way you can repay us is with plenty of Oscars, as you did this year, as as most years. <laughs> as most years, for sure. I mean, you guys, you have the best actors, you have the best uh, costume designers, you have a lot of amazing filmmakers. You you guys crush. Um, I'm in awe of the the BAFTA world. That's wonderful. All right, Todd. Well. Um... You know, today's podcast is going to be largely about introducing you to the listeners of the 21st Rewrite. I'm sure most of them are familiar with at least one thing that you've written, but often when writers get to talk about film and, you know, the publicity trail is on, it tends to be about the film itself. So can we start out with talking about where you grew up and what your early life was like? My early life, before I was a writer, I just found this hysterical photograph. I don't know why this picture popped up in the movie DVD drawer, which is never accessed anymore because everything's digital. But there's a picture of me in an embarrassing tank top with my white socks pulled up to my knees. Uh, I'm probably 11 
uh, I'm not seeing the world as a writer yet, but if I were writing about that boy, I would say, please lower the socks. That is, that is not a good book. Um, I, I think, um, early life is where we become who we are long before we know that we're headed in that direction. I, I never thought I was going to be a writer, but I did a lot of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from the time I was five or six, I realized that being funny in the classroom would do two things. It would get me loads of friends and it would get me kicked out of class, mm. which I thought was fantastic. So I spent a lot of my elementary school years in the principal's office or in the hallway for being naughty. And that was all by telling jokes. It was just by, by spinning a story. And then when I was a early teens, both my sisters had gone on to college and I was just alone with my mom and dad. And I would spend the afternoon storytelling. We were talking just before we went on air about baseball mm-hmm. and uh, baseball as not your bailiwick as a Brit, but to an American boy, baseball is everything. And I used to wander around my backyard, tossing a ball up in the air and I would announce entire games. I would do two and a half, three hours, every pitch, every batter, and it was of the game that was to be played that night. So I imagined how it was going to play out. And every once in a while, the next morning when I would check the newspaper, I would see in the box score that one of the things that I'd predicted had actually happened. And that was magical. Like such and such player hit a key two-run double or a home run or the winning pitcher was, was this gentleman. And that, I know, cemented to me the magic of storytelling. Not that I was predicting the future, but that you could weave something together out of nothing or out of disparate parts and turn it into something that landed in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that that storytelling, telling jokes to my parents, my mom was an easy laugh, my dad was a very difficult laugh. All these things challenged me to keep improving my story. So long before I put pen to paper, I was a storyteller. Yeah, actually, one of the things that comes up for me every now and again is uh, I'm I'm quite into sports, but association football, what Americans call soccer, and um, go Leicester City. I was very happy. With yes, the final. That was a great game. That was a great game. Yeah, and one of the things that sometimes you do meet people who are not into sports, they don't really get it, and I think one of the ways to really think about it is that it's because it becomes a narrative for fans that the story is what's important. It's the fact you've followed certain personalities and you see them in these these moments. There's there's rules of the game, there's a structure to everything. But the game in itself is only meaningful in the context of the narrative around it. So something like Leicester City winning the FA Cup is with the narrative of they haven't won the FA Cup for however many decades or ever. You know <laughs> or ever in that in Leicester's particular case. Uh, they'd won the Premier League a, a few years ago, and it was a complete surprise. And it's these stories that make sport fun. You know, the the fact that something can happen that's completely unpredictable and the way that we communicate around that. And uh, did you grow up in Philadelphia? Is that, do I have that right? I did. From 10 to 17, I was in Philadelphia. We mm-hmm. did a lot of moving prior to that. but my And that's a sports city, right, uh, Philadelphia? Oh, yeah. And my dad had grown up in Philadelphia. So I'm a, a sports maniac for all the Philly teams, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia, it's pretty far away from 
from Los Angeles, the film world, uh, from New York City and the, the theater world. So where did you draw your inspirations from at that, at that early age? Like what sparked some of that interest in actually trying out writing? I didn't think about writing until I was 21. So the I did love movies. I mean, and I felt something separate in movies. They were very magical for me. And I know they're magical for a lot of people. But I didn't feel that that's a job I'm going to pursue. Mm -hmm. In fact, sports was my total focus. I, I wanted to play professional sports. I played college and baseball. I studied broadcasting because I thought, you know, if you don't play, you should at least talk about the sport. But what happened by the end of my college years of studying broadcasting and announcing a ton of stuff on the radio, I just realized that it was really boring. Like not participating was really boring. Talking about what these other athletes were doing. And I wound up using it sort of as a stand-up comedy thing. I just was telling jokes for my friends who I knew were listening. And that was storytelling too. But it wasn't enough for me to just be a spectator on the sideline. I wanted to be in the game. and writing I, I stumbled into writing or was grabbed by the back of the neck i like to think that uh that god picked me up like an errant puppy and just said okay um you think you're gonna go play over there with those people no no no. i have this plan for you and i spent eight or nine years trying to wriggle free until i realized oh okay um i'm okay at this and they're paying me money and they're not paying me money to do anything else so maybe maybe it's time to be a grown-up and accept that this is my job. So in in terms of the, the, let's call it the professional training that can exist, you know, there's obviously the routes that certain people take in terms of going to a film school or doing a master's degree in creative writing or anything like that. But would you say you're largely self-taught and did you read particularly books about screenwriting in order to learn the mechanics of it? Or, or did you try and kind of learn from experience and talking to other people? No, there's one book that remains the, the singular book that I reference for people's Making a Good Screenplay Great by Linda Seeger. It, it's, the, it's the most basic layout of what a professional script needs to look at like in terms of act length and rising action and falling action. And, and it's rock solid. It has great examples in particular, it singles out Witness, the Peter Weir film, which is extraordinary and perfectly written in a professional, in a Hollywood kind of way. And I want to bifurcate because it, it gets confusing for people when they see movies come out like Nomadland, which wins the best Oscar. Yes. Now, Nomadland would, will never be, even though it was nominated for best script, will never be a script that someone who wants to work professionally in Hollywood would read and have as a map. Sure. It's, it's a beautifully executed movie, but it's an auteur film. It's uh, an eavesdropping film. It's the rules that it follows are its own, They're very much independent where a movie's not expensive and the filmmaker has a lot of freedom to do exactly what they want. But if you're making a movie for 60 million or a hundred million or $200 million, then you deal a lot more with audience expectation. And so you have to be able to build that particular house. It's the difference between being asked to design a log cabin in the woods or being asked to design a four seasons hotel. Hmm. And both of them are beautiful and both of them offer a different kind of luxury and experience. But if you're working in the studio system, if you provide a log cabin when they're expecting to come to the four seasons, you're fired. 
So you need to know how to follow the rules and even follow the rules in order to break them later, but you need to follow the rules. And that is what Linda's book does exquisitely. And in terms of the self-taught thing, writing is, I've said this many times, writing is first and last a craft. Screenwriting is, is it's just a, truly a craft. So it's like making chairs or blowing glass. And when you do something that is a craft, you don't start out crafty. You start out lousy and you get a lot of glass shards in your fingers and you burn your lips when you're trying to blow the glass or you snap the wood when you're trying to affix it to the bottom of the chair. And you're going to do that a lot. So the problem with the screenwriting culture as it exists is it's presented as a scratcher ticket. It's presented as a fast way into the movie business. And if you write that one script, it'll sell for a lot of money. And this is what grabs the headlines. But the bulk of the people that splash into the business in that way don't have long careers because it was a one-off. They haven't worked on their craft. They don't have things behind it. And the system chews them up. There are anomalies, you know, the one-off people that start young and and continue to work. That, That does happen. But for the most part, it's very dangerous to get a hit right out of the block because you fool yourself into thinking that you don't really have to develop your craft. So it's a long play and anyone that's, that's starting at it or, you know, two or three scripts in, I would just say you're, you know, a minimum of 10 scripts away because it just takes a long time to get good. Yeah. It's so interesting. You say that because on the last uh, writer's workshop episode I just did, I actually highlighted, I was talking about 1917 and how, it's constructed in this purely sequential fashion and how this means that every action therefore is highly relevant to what comes next. You can't cut away. You can't just start the story again with a new scene. You have to continue the last one. And I reminded myself and the the listeners that this really is about going back to that older meaning of the word that we used to use, which is playwright, meaning a craftsperson of plays, not a screenwriter in that purely creative sense. There's so much of a construction involved in a screenplay that when you start to pull pieces out, you start to see the whole construction tumble. You know, the the idea is that you you build it almost like a bridge with these strong triangles, that, the stronger shape, you know, to, to make sure it all holds up. You can see that. I'm not going to single out particular movies because I don't feel like being a movie critic. But you can see where in the spectacle movies that we have now, where writing and craft has been honored because those movies hold together a story Mm -hmm. and where it's not been honored when the keys have been given to auteurs where their writing is not their central means of expression. For for those directors, it's all about the visual. So they could have seven or eight visual scenes that are striking and that they love. They think that's enough. But for the audience, it's not enough Mm -hmm. because the audience hungers for story and disconnected imagery ultimately creates a museum experience, sort of go gallery to gallery, say, oh, that's lovely. That's interesting. But it's not immersive. And a great movie experience is totally immersive. And you can't have that without great writing. Yeah, that's something I've tried to argue over the course of doing this podcast for the last couple of years, especially is to really go back and see what the story underlying something is. Because 
so often because it is a visual medium, we do confuse the two. And and there is such a thing as visual language, which, which can add something to the story as well. I, I don't deny that, but it is really fascinating to go back and read these screenplays just as they are on the page and think, what would happen if a different director took this on or a different cast of actors, or if it had been filmed 10 years later, you know, we've seen these projects that have been waiting around 20 years before they got made. And you think, what would this have been like if it had been done with all of the fashions of the nineties? Um, there's, there's a lot to say about going back to the actual story itself and making sure that that works and it's got the heart and soul. I want to give a, a, an encouragement to anybody that's starting out or hasn't been um, lucky enough to have a movie made yet. The, the power that's in the hands of the storyteller, it's, it's been within the business suppressed and it's all squeezed out into television where the writer is king. Mm-hmm. In movies, they don't like to give the power to the writers. They're nervous about that, but they do understand that it resides with them. Because if you think of a recipe, you go online and you look up Jamie Oliver and, and you, you're not going to go, really? Does it need five shallots? Does it really, is it two limes? Really? No, you're going to, you're going to read it and you follow it and you get as close to Jamie Oliver as you can. And it's delicious. And your friends all love you and they want to come over again. In the movies, what you write down is the recipe for the film. Mm -hmm. And you don't really see that until you're on set. So if you're writing a scene where, for instance, I'm just looking at my table here in my front room and I describe the table Say Komarniki's table is festooned with two discarded masks from the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, a child's puzzle, and a half-done sheet of homework. Right. So I just write that as as flavor. It may or may not play a part in the story as we go forward, but that is what Komarniki's front room looks like. Mm-hmm. When you go on set of the movie of my life, you are going to see that the set dressers and the costume designers and the wardrobe people and everybody have followed that recipe to a T. So you will see a half done thing in child's handwriting of homework. And you'll see the puzzle, the game, the masks, the half sipped drink of pomegranate juice. That's what you'll see because everybody trusts that when this has been approved, that this is the scene we're shooting. This is the movie you're making. And there's tremendous responsibility there and power and fun and, and creativity. So take care of what you write. And I've, uh, I've always loved writing description mm-hmm. because the, the challenge in writing description in the screenplay is maximum impact with the minimum amount of words because people will skip even the thinnest descriptions, people just sort of fly through dialogue. Yeah. But I like the fact that I'm known for when I go in on meetings, people will, you know, they may or may not quote dialogue from a movie of mine, but they will definitely quote descriptions because I always take great care in the reading experience being exciting for the reader. So don't have long blocks of description when you're writing. Mm-hmm. Trust the reader to fill in the blanks, but be detailed. Don't say, um, a large man, 48, walks into the room. Give me some, give me some flair. Give me some feeling. You know, a large man just back from the barber walks in the room and the smell of aftershave hits our hero first. Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're like, okay, I know that guy. 
I know that guy who just walked in. Now I know my hero better. So those details really matter. I've actually noticed in many screenplays that I've read that in a film, you are limited to two sensations. It's vision and sound. But of course, you do see these things written into screenplays, uh, smell, taste, and, uh, and feeling, you know, yeah. both emotional feeling and what a character physically experiencing. And that is giving a lot of instruction to the actors and to other people involved. And it also does just make it more enjoyable for the reader who's, who's working through this and deciding whether they're going to enjoy this story or not. Yeah, and the people that are reading inevitably have to go tell someone that's higher rank than themselves. So if mm -hmm. they have to apologize for anything, they're not going to pitch it on. But if they go, this was a blast to read, it's going to take you 90 minutes and we're going to want to make this movie. If you don't give the reader a fun time, they're, they're not going to recommend you forward. Yeah, and another thing that I've noticed as well is that even though screenplays initially seem very long, they take a very long time to write. Those pages are actually very limited. Some screenplays are 80 pages, 90 pages, and you really do have to reconsider, like, is that entire paragraph there really adding so much value to the screenplay? Or can I say the same thing in a line of six words, seven words, and communicate much more directly so that I have space to include other things that are actually going to appear on screen or, or be lines of dialogue and things like that. Yeah, concision and precision are the key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're writing it, you feel like it's never going to end. You're never going to get to that last page. But of course, <laughs> once it's once it's there, the, the cutting down is just as valuable, it seems, as, as the inclusion of details. Yeah, my dream as a writer is one day to be able to write a one-word novel. Yeah. Then I, then I know I've learned how to communicate concisely. I think just saying the word Sully probably might work. <laughs> <laughs> There's a word of a story in that man's name, that's for sure. So one more thing I wanted to ask before we actually start to move on to, to Sully is about feedback and um, who, you, who you get advice from yourself. Because, again, on the last episode that I just did by myself, I, I talked about writers' groups and how important that's been in my development as a writer is actually meeting other writers, talking to them about what I'm working on, reading what they're doing, giving them advice and my perspective. So who do you usually reach, reach out to? Who do you get feedback from? Well, I have a company and I've got a guy, Jonathan, who runs my company, who's been with me for 12 years, maybe 13 now. And he started as an intern and then became an assistant. And now he runs a company. And then another colleague who's a director of development, Seth, and these guys, you know, they're the opposite of a yes man. Uh, their their job is to just beat me up and beat me up, and and our rule is nothing goes out into the world until every scene is as good as the best scene. So, you know, this is a guess, but usually I'm about thirty five drafts, you know, before before we're at a place where it can actually be seen by anybody else. It's vital. They they have made me. And, and neither of them are writers, but both of them have made me a much better writer. They push me and push me and push me. Now, the danger is, and I'm, I'm blessed because I've been around long enough to know the difference between good advice and bad advice. The danger is at the beginning of your career, listening to the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Because not many people are equipped to give you notes on a screenplay. 
And we all, at the beginning of our careers, want to hear how good we are. And we're convinced that we're better, far better than we are. Listening to people who tell you how good you are is a disaster. Getting notes from someone who doesn't know what a screenplay is, is a disaster. So you really have to filter through and grow and trust and build relationships. And people take this stuff very seriously. You lose friends over criticizing their work. And it's a, it's a very sensitive topic. So I, I think every writer who wants to have a writing career need, needs to find a non-writing producer who's not a writer that they trust and they want to tell stories together. That's, that's really the best road forward. Um, there's a guy who used to work with me. A guy walks into a bar. He's, he's not in the business anymore. He's, he's moved on uh, probably wisely <laughs> into another field of endeavor. But his name's Matt Weinberg. He's just exquisite, like Olympic champion of giving notes. So I had just written something, a spec, a new spec for the first time in 15 years. And it had gone through the process. We attached a director. Everybody was happy. And the director said, can we do some friends and family reads? I said, sure. You know, who's it going to go to? And I hadn't, I might speak to Matt as a friend, but I hadn't spoken to him professionally in, in 10 years. Can you take a look at this script? Now, at this point, it had, had 35, 40 drafts. I mean, the thing had been, you, you figured there was nothing left for him to find. And he had a note. He had a couple notes, but he essentially had one note. And I would say that his one note saved the movie. His one note oh. took the movie from, you know, a, a car that's going along and it's a solid car and you're happy you're in the car and doing 65 on the highway. And he turned it into a rocket with one note. And nobody had ever seen the note. Uh, the, the director, maybe four months earlier, had circled the area where this note wound up. But he just said, I don't know what's there. Maybe there's something there. And because he didn't have a real note around it, and I thought it was fine, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But Matt was able to locate the sore tooth and in uprooting it and then putting something new, not only touched that, but it touched the ending and it touched three other parts in the script. That was a gift from heaven. That's how spectacular the level of help can be when you find the right people that you trust. He easily could have read it and was like, I love it. It's fun. He said that, but he said, it's not done. Here's what you need to do. So it took me another 10 days of work, but total game changer. Oh, fantastic. As you may have noticed, the, the name of the podcast is actually a little bit of a pun because I called it the 21st rewrite, not just because I focus on screenplays written in the 21st century, but also the as you mentioned, the number of rewrites that one might have to go through in, in order to get something ready. Uh, you know, I thought 21 was a high number. You're saying 35, which is much, much higher. Um, but it absolutely makes sense that you're going to keep working at this until you're completely happy with it. And there is no real rule to how many times you might want to go back and, and fix things. You know, you might always find improvements to be made. But of course, there's going to be a point where you're going to say, yeah, I think this is ready now to to go to the next step. Yeah, it's very tricky. Now, I'm talking about it from being a professional for a long time 
And what I'm asking of myself in 35 rewrites is really different than somebody who's starting out and doesn't have the capacity to do 35 rewrites. Just, just absolutely. It sounds horrifying. Yeah. And not only it sounds horrifying, you, you just can't do it. You just, there's not that those muscles don't exist to go to that next level and, and execute and execute. So it is something to, to aspire to. But the main thing I want to be clear is that you can't let yourself off the hook. But people are too easy on themselves and they think good is good enough. And it's not. And we should be aiming for greatness and we should demand that of ourselves. We should expect to show up at least trying to be great. It takes a while. Um, you know, I'm not saying I'm great. I'm saying that I've been doing one thing professionally for the last 33 years, which is right books, plays and, and television and features. That's all I've done for three plus decades. And I'm on maybe letter D in the alphabet, maybe, maybe small D, not even on capital D yet of what I'm trying to achieve in the alphabet of my skill and storytelling. So the, the time it takes, the arc of a career, the beauty of age helping writers. So I'm 55 and I'm in the prime of my career. How many, how many careers are like that? So if you can rest in that when you're younger and understand that you're in for a long, long haul and aiming for greatness, then you can be more gentle with yourself at the right times and harder on yourselves at the right times. Mm -hmm. Just this last thought about editing, when to edit, when to rewrite. This is the hard, hard and fast rule beyond how many rewrites you do. If, if anybody is working with me that we're, we're developing, and we have 53 projects, we're developing with all manner of writers and different phases of the projects. But this is the hard and fast rule. Until the writer has written the words, the end, they are not allowed to touch a scene. There is no rewriting of scenes before the words, the end. Now that doesn't mean they've written a draft. They've written some pages. They got it out, you know, 90, 130, it doesn't matter, but they've gotten pretty much all of it out. And it says the end, then it goes in the drawer for two weeks. Then they can start rewriting because the self editing process, the trying to get it right before it's even a movie, before it's even a story. Imagine if you're telling a dinner party joke and three lines in, you go back and say, oh, no, no, it wasn't a guy who walked into a bar. Was It was a llama. Oh, oh, that llama's not funny. It wasn't, a, it was two llamas. If you keep doing that, guess what happens? Two things. One, you lose everyone's attention at the, at the dinner party. But two, you lose interest in the joke because you keep trying to futz with it before it's an actual joke. Get to the punchline, write the words at the end, and then go back and say, wow, it would be funnier if it were shorter in the middle. Or if I inv in, you know, involve that family knocking on the door three quarters in. And then you shape the dinner party joke that you are writing down. That is, that's brilliant advice. I, I really like that. And I think, again, you know, many people that will be listening will be earlier in their careers and just thinking about that in terms of the long game and actually being much more patient with yourself and not expecting, I think there is also a misconception, you know, that we should have found and be doing what we think we should be doing by the age of 30 or something like that. 
but that's not necessarily how it works for writers, for example. Maybe if you we were talking about sports earlier, you might say to yourself, okay, I'm 40 now, I'm probably not going to play in the major leagues, but it's certainly Correct. not that way for writers. <laughs> Correct. Yes, and, and a lot of people don't have the time to put in. If you're paying the bills through some other kind of job, you simply don't have the time to get great at doing it. So you just have to be patient with yourself, patient with the opportunities, do it when you can, do it with all your might. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be results oriented. Don't think A plus B equals C. Just do the do the hard work, do the farming, and you'll look up at, at some point and you might be pretty good at it. Wonderful. Well, I think this is a great moment to actually start to talk about Sully so we can see some of the ways that, that all of the stuff we've just been talking about has its practical application in a particular screenplay. I think this is a film that has actually got quite a cult following, especially among people of my generation, which is quite interesting. There's just this uh, excitement around Sully, and I think a lot of people are familiar with it. So we won't have to really rehash the story or talk too much about it. Many people even remember the event quite well as, as it was in the news so prominently. But just to kind of begin with that then, how did the project first come about for you? Where did you get to start with it? At what point in the process of it becoming a film were you involved? Well, I was from ground zero. It was uh, mm -hmm. my former partner, John Berg, who I made Elf with. Our partnership had ended because he got into the studio system uh, as an executive and he was working at Warner Brothers. And he sent me the article about Sully's book being published and mm -hmm. the movie rights being taken by, by Frank Marshall and, and Alan Stewart. And he wrote to me, hey, you should, you should write this movie. And so I wrote back to him right away. I'm like, completely, I want to write this movie. And you're, you're my buddy. Hey, is this a Warner Brothers movie? And he wrote back, he's like, oh, no, we'd never make this movie. Uh, you know, way, way, too, way too small. But you should pursue it. So I had my agent call the producers. And it was just an OWA, as they say in, in the biz, open writing assignment. And I read the book twice. And I pitched for the movie. And the experience on, on the phone, it couldn't have been better. And I can laugh about this now because it all wound up with a happy ending. Frank Marshall has, has become a good friend and I'm in awe of him, an amazing human and producer and produced all Spielberg's movies and just one of the all-time greats. At the end of the pitch, he said to me, I feel like you tapped my brain and said out loud the movie that I see. And the end of this pitch was virtual high fives. I'm, I was in New York City. This was uh, pre-Zoom existing, but I was on the phone in New York City and everyone was in LA. But it was completely like, we'll be talking soon, that kind of thing. And uh, five months later, I still hadn't heard a word. Five months is a long time. Five months is a long time when you're expecting to uh, at least get another conversation, at least talk further. And I started to feel a little crazy because I, I started to feel like, did I even have that pitch? Like, what, what happened? What happened with that? Because all this other work in between, and you're busy, you're chasing, or you're doing jobs, but that one had lingered with me, and it was sad to me that it had gone away. And then after five months of silence, I got this call, totally out of the blue, and Alan Stewart, the other producer on it, who has also become a dear friend, she's amazing. She, uh, she said, well, we went and talked to everybody else, 
and we liked first the best. So I was the first person to pitch for the movie. I didn't know that. And oh, wow. they had felt internally, wow, we love this, but we can't just take the first pitch. We got to hear what the town has to say. That's what the five months of silence were. It wasn't a ghosting. It wasn't me being blown off. It was just they were doing their due diligence. So they were behaving properly as producers, but I was the wounded one. I was, you know, like writers, we take everything personally and we have no idea what's going on. We have to just trust you, put the work out there and let it go, let it go. But um, after those five months, they called and they said, come on board. So then I, uh, I got to meet Sully and was thrown into the process of becoming an expert in airplanes after knowing nothing about airplanes and becoming an expert on just the man himself, his life and what got him to be the right man for the right job at the right time. And we had this wonderful experience and I'm turning in the second draft. Everyone's thrilled so far and flight comes out. Mm, yeah. Denzel Washington, Paramount Pictures, Robert Zemeckis, huge studio movie, not based on a true story, but a movie star in a plane crash movie with an investigation. And the producers looked around and like, there's no way the town has an appetite for two of these movies, even though ours is true. And they literally went underground. They, they took the script. They were very happy with it. We were done with it. And they sat on it for four years. And four years later, Alan Stewart thought, you know who would be good for this? And she sent it to Clint Eastwood. And then Clint reads it. And six weeks later, we're in pre-production. So proving that we never know anything about anything. No. <laughs> this, this accordion of it's never going to happen. It's suddenly happening. It did it happen. It's oh, it's never going to happen. Now it's going to happen. And then it's not only going to happen, but it's going to happen with two heroes of the business in Clint and Tom Hanks. So I'm still pinching myself that these guys are my, my colleagues, my buddies. And uh, it just took about six years. <laughs> wow. I mean, of course I've heard, I've heard stories of, of all kinds about how long it's actually taken for one of these projects to be made, but I just had a script option that we now have a director on and they're making offers to actors right now that I wrote 23 years ago. So <laughs> you have to, be wow. <laughs> you have to be patient. Um, so actually, what do you think it was about your pitch in particular that, that stood out then? At this point, had you made the decision to try and tell the story from the point of view of the investigation as opposed to what might be the obvious thing, which is to just dramatize the crash itself? Or the crash, sorry, the water landing is probably a better way of calling ah. it than uh, involuntary crash landing. No, I um, always but had the pitch be out of order. I always had the storytelling out of order. Mm -hmm. Um. Frank really, really wanted to start with the with the, the plane crash, the notion of a plane crash. And so we talked that through and, and how to make that work. But I always had it be, be told out of order. And then, of course, the untold part of it makes the true story interesting because the public perception of it and all the mocking that we got when the movie was announced, like, wait a minute, didn't this take three minutes and 14 seconds? And we got to sit through 90 minutes of a story about that. But it's the untold story, and pretty much everyone's story is untold. Even even people in regular life who are not in the press, 
you would say, oh, the the Johnsons, we know about them. They're their daughters in this school, and they, you know, we have the surface of their lives. And even if we're close with them, we might know another layer or two. But we don't know the untold true story of what it's like in their bedroom or at their son's ball game. We don't know, and that is what makes movies so scintillating. Mm-hmm. If you get invited behind the curtain to see a true story unfold and you thought you knew way better than thinking you know nothing about it. The, the, the tricking of an audience is very satisfying in a thriller or any kind of story. It's, it's fun, but that audience goes in expecting to be tricked. So their hmm. experience of that movie is they're trying to outsmart the writing, but when people come in with the reverse and they think they've tricked you before because they know this story. Oh my goodness. How fun to do that magic trick. I love it. And thematically, actually, just to continue on from what you're saying that the other thing that's really prominent aside from the overall story structure, as I mentioned, being more about the investigation and the aftermath as opposed to, actually the event itself. The other thing that thematically is very prominent is the idea of being considered a hero when you don't feel a hero yourself. And so this idea, did that? Did you start to see that actually in the memoir when you read it? Was it when you actually got to meet with Sully and talk to him? At, at what point did this start to become a bit clearer that this was where the heart of the story was going to lie? That really came from time with Sully because it's very difficult to survive fame. And while the world was fetting him and he was meeting Obama and throwing out first pitches and the, while all that was happening, he, he lost uh, 55 pounds. His family life became very stressful because he wasn't, wasn't allowed to fly. They, mm-hmm. they had no way to make money. And the shadow over them was this investigation as it says in the film, if they find in any way that there was human error, it's going to fall on him and that's it. So his whole life doing it the right way and then doing it heroically, exponentially more the right way was constantly on the verge of being his undoing. Like that's really what happened to the guy. And that makes for compelling drama. And uh, in terms of actually trying to be honest about who you're portraying. Obviously, this is something that, let's say, the media didn't really have to worry about. You know, they were able to to talk and chatter and speculate and do all these things. But even when we're dealing with a biography of someone who's died centuries ago, but, you know, I've written a story set in the English Civil War myself, and I feel some duty to the people I'm writing about, even if they've been long dead. But the fact that you actually know someone as well and know that this this film's going to come out during their lifetime it's going to affect the public perception of them and possibly knowing the way the modern audiences are this actually might be the place they get the information about the person from how did you how did you navigate this experience of having to write about someone who's actually alive and had had such a negative kind of experience of being in the spotlight previously i do it very humbly and prayerfully because it's a sacred trust, whether the person is alive or not, you are responsible for if the movie becomes a movie, 
the lasting impression of that person's life on the world. And you are putting in their mouths words, if they're not in the cockpit voice recording, words that they never said. And they have to be cinematic. So it has to be true with quotes around it. It has to be true with a capital T and it has to be true with a small t. All of those things. Because you can't do a hagiography and just say, oh, it was awesome for Sully and he had no problems and he handled it brilliantly and the bad guys were wrong and woohoo. Because then again, you have, a short, mm-hmm. you have a short film. If you don't have a hero that's questioning his own journey, then you have no movie to follow. The, the biggest thing is just to stay humble and to honor the journey of that person. And the, the way you do that is by listening, listening to what moves them, what frightens them, what they're proud of, and take it all in and really be locked in and never insouciant about what they're saying or how they're behaving. It is, I, I just keep going back to that. It is a sacred trust between writer and subject and uh, humility is the biggest ingredient. When you're a writer and you know, you're not actually at the helm of the project, you're not the director, you're at some point going to hand over your writing to the studio and other creative decisions are going to be made. You, you did direct one film, as you mentioned, back in, I think, 2003. And then since then, you've mainly been writing and having other people direct your material. What have you learned from that experience, I guess I'm asking about, at some point, letting go and trusting your material in other people's hands? Well, try to make every movie with Clint Eastwood. That's the, um, I don't think that would be possible forever, but it would be. Uh, yeah. He's still doing it. Yeah. Clint is bypasses the studio system. So he is the studio and he, if he thinks something is working, he doesn't want to fix it. So he loved the script and he shot the script. So that was, that was beautiful. That was easy to, uh, mm-hmm. and what's funny is there were a couple scenes that were in the script that he didn't shoot ultimately. And then one scene that he shot slightly in a truncated version. And when I first watched the movie, I went to this place of, oh, it would have been, you know, the movie would have been better if he'd done these things. And immediately I was chasing. I was like, you know what, dude? This guy's made 35 films. He knows what the hell he's doing. Everything else around it is so good. Who's to know? Who's to know just because you missed those scenes as the writer that it would have been better? So I immediately shut up. So the, the key thing is to turn your work over to masters uh, Mr. Hanks and Mr. Eastwood did their did their jobs, as did everybody on that movie. All of Clint's team and Aaron Eckhart's amazing in that movie, and um, you know that was just a joy. the The other thing you learn is you have no control. So there's the projects that uh, can go unnamed, where in in letting go and surrendering, because that's just contractually what you must do. You experience actors deciding not to say lines, and deciding to you know take over movies for for different reasons and with different agendas that are not tied to the script and you find yourself ridiculed in the press for having written a terrible scene with which you had nothing to do it was a complete improv by the actor and the scene that was in there was a 
a terrific scene and, and did all the things that the critic is saying, hey, this scene should have done this. Nothing you can do. You just gotta, it's like getting hit by a pitch in baseball. There's nothing you can do. It was a hundred mile an hour fastball. It hit you in the ass. That's sore. You just limp to first base and wait till your next turn at bat. Yep. And you can't please everybody, of course. Like that's just unreasonable expectations as well. I agree with that. That's for sure. Um, now we are talking about Clint Eastwood. I did want to ask, uh, especially as I consider him one of these filmmakers who ha- really does specialize in the theme of heroism and also the kind of the mask that heroism actually disguises with certain characters, This the concept of valor and what's really going on behind. You know, he's written himself or been involved in so many projects that have really shown both the good and bad aspects of this kind of specifically American type of heroism that's kind of embedded in the the ideas of the old West and stuff like that. But what do you think he brought to the the story that you particularly enjoyed or felt could only be included by working with him as an individual? He understands deep in his soul, the, the battle between man and, and machine or man and bureaucracy the, the individual against the, the collective that seeks to squelch the individual voice. That's something that really matters to him. And I know that that resonated for him because he didn't know either that the investigation was so targeted on the actual <laughs> hero. And you know, it wasn't super clear when I was first encountered the, the story, what it was beyond training and personal excellence that made Sully survive. But what came clear through the course of development and and getting to know Sully, it was that thing that gets underlined in the script, which is, I know the thing that really grabbed Clint, the human factor. What is the human factor? And if you take the human factor out of anything, and we live in this world now of analytics, all of sports, the shift in baseball, the percentages, everything's running numbers. Everything's gambling. What's the over? What's the under? The obsession with measurement from the human animal. I think that just limits us and how we live. And it limits the mystery of what it is to be human. And life is not numbers. And you and I are not part of some percentage of people that are currently podcasting. You are you, the one you ever in the history of the world. I'm me. I'm sitting on this particular chair. We're not in some abstract you know, this is the 7% chance of you and I talking about this moment at this time. No, it's just you and me. We're having a chat. That's it. So I want to continue to focus on stories that are rooted in the here and now, no matter what century they're set in, in the impact of being alive and being human. The, the world is spiraling towards a technological entity that continues to limit human behavior even more and more. Our imaginations are curtailed by our devices. Our human relations have just been curtailed extremely by, by illness. And a lot of the solutions being proffered are technological solutions. I don't think those are the solutions. They can be part of the solution, but the real solution is always going to be brother looking after brother. Um, mother looking after child, human connection, 
across diverse backgrounds, learning to listen to each other, being there for each other. That's going to be what keeps the globe spinning, not the latest invention. Mm -hmm. And it's at the heart of story as well. It, in not And story is how we navigate our lives and how we understand the world and just seeing ourselves as, as you as you mentioned, you know, a calculation as a series of numbers or statistics doesn't account for how the stories shape us and our outlook and what we want and what we wish for and what we hope for and all of the, the things that are so essential to human nature. I'm interested in the fact that it's so foisted upon us because the people doing it are human beings too. So human beings are not machines. There's nobody I know that likes analytics appearing on a baseball screen while you're watching a game. There's nobody that sa says, oh, really, it's interesting. He has a 12% chance of hitting it between the third baseman and the shortstop. There's not a single fan on planet Earth that wants that on there. But it's on there because the people that run the stations believe that this is what is necessary, that this is somehow making it more modern. But it's not, and it's losing people's interest. They're eating their own tail. I'm fascinated by those boardroom decisions where progress is inevitable, quote unquote, and therefore whatever looks like progress, we must follow through that doorway. Instead of saying, wow, there's some things that have been around for a long time that are pretty great. Maybe we should lean into them instead of the newest thing. Do you think this was on your mind even when you were writing Solly and seeing this concept behind how the investigation was very much about uh, how much fuel is left? Was that left engine still running? Well, all, the, all of the data-driven aspects of it and not really listening to the person involved trying to put forward this fact, which is I had a sensation. I had, I knew what was happening and I was the only one there. And with this experience, I could predict what would give us our best chances of survival. 100%. And that's in the film on purpose. When they, when they say, Hey, the computer said the, the engine was turning. Like the guy who was in the plane who went through it, mm -hmm. not a rookie said, no, I felt it go. I knew that this was the way forward. I'm like, no, the computer said, no, the simulation said that trampling of the human experience, of course, is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, we have mm -hmm. to pay attention to these things because technology has no loyalty. I, I wrote that in a play of mine, my goodness, 30 years ago now. But it really stands out to me of all the things I've written down on a piece of paper that's been the truest. When we have technology working when our computer works or this phone call works or our car works. We're, we're thrilled. We, we take advantage of it. We have no qualms about it. We quickly grow to expect it to work flawlessly. But when it breaks down, technology does not have empathy. It's not going to say, oh, William, Todd, you know, this is super important to you guys. And I'm sort of running out of gas and I have a little bit more, but I'm going to give it my all so you guys don't go offline. <laughs> So we have to be in touch with that fact. If we understand technology has no loyalty, then we have to have backup plans to slide in there when technology fails. So we don't. What we do is we replace failed technology with more technology. And we keep thinking, oh, well, 
I can offload my problem to the next thing and the next thing. Oh, you know, I'm just one app away or I can't get into the ball game because I don't have tickets with my son because I have the wrong app. And my only way through is, is not talking to the vendor, the guy holding the gate and saying, Hey, here's our seats. We always come. Oh, I recognize you. Yeah. Go through that. Heaven forbid they would ever try to do it personally. And my daughter taught me the most amazing lesson just recently, how I have become a victim of this too. So we were trying to return a batting helmet for her softball. She needed a smaller size and I lost the receipt. And so I'm trying to find proof of this receipt on some Citibank app where I have no paper receipt. And I'm this ridiculous 55 year old standing on the curb outside the sporting goods store, you know, thumbing in improper codes. And it's just going, I'm getting more and more upset. And my daughter says, why don't we just go in and ask someone, tell them what happened. Ah, tell them the story. And I said, people are not like that. They were not going to help us. And I <laughs> just created this awful scenario, which I don't even agree with, but I was so locked into relying on this damn phone. Finally, she'd had enough. And she goes, I'm going in. So she goes in. I trail in after her. She's already talking to the woman at the front door who I'm thinking, that's not the right person to talk to. And then the woman looks at me before I speak and she goes, Oh, sweetheart, it's all covered. Go back, swap out the helmet. Make sure when you check out, you just come through me. And done. And I said to my daughter, uh, what did we just learn? <laughs> and she said, she's 11, she's so smart. She goes, uh, daddy, what did you just learn? <laughs> that people are good and that people want to help out. And I was in need of that reminder. So I, I actually had a, a final question about Sully that is going to be a really awkward transition from what you've just said. <laughs> That's all right. I love awkward and, transitions. Um, however, I, I think I can frame it well in despite that, because what I, I did want to ask the last thing about Sully um, was how the legacy of 9-11 affected how you felt what you would say and what you should say about this event as well. and just to kind of put it back into perspective and link it to the positive side as well. New York City, not only was it such a tragedy, 9-11, but what it's also remembered for is the huge outpouring of support and help that came from the first responders and the people on the ground and the, the feeling of unity and cohesion and solidarity that came into the city as a result of the tragedy as well. So obviously you know there's there's references to 9-11 in the screenplay there's obviously there was some possible controversies or difficulties with even having the the dream sequences of you know planes crashing in sully's mind but just from your perspective how did the legacy of 9-11 affect what what you were writing hugely the the thing that mattered to me the most in the script that was not a quote from, from a transcript was the line, nobody dies today. And one of the first responders says that to one of the rescue passengers. You got me, <laughs> as a New Yorker, you got me choked up with this question because this is everything to us. Um, what we survived, what we continue to survive, the fact that New York still is the safest big city in the world, that 
we have friends that are scuba cops that go out every day and under the water, under all the pinions, under all the bridges, they're looking for something. Um, the, the daily heroism of what it is to look after a city and look after its citizens is deeply moving to me. And on a day when that plane landed, the expectation, even when the chatter in the air was, it's terrorism. The expectation was in a city racked by 9-11, you'd have PTSD, that there'd be a hesitancy to do anything around a plane floating in the middle of the water. It's going to blow up. You know, there's oil. There's, you know, there's no way that that happened because the pilot landed it there. And instead, everybody ran to help. The whole city, individual citizens, ferry boat operators, the cops, nobody hesitated. And that was as important in no casualties as what Sully did in landing the plane. So the, the vitality and the hopefulness and the instantaneous love for fellow man that the New Yorker showed, that's the city that I live in. That's why the city is already bouncing back so ferociously from the pandemic. There's something about New York that reminds me of those, um, it used to be Bozo the Clown. You'd, you'd fill it up with air and you'd bring it home and you, you'd punch it and had sand in the bottom. And as soon as you punched it, it would pop back up and it'd still have a smile on its face. Like there's nothing you could do to knock the clown down. And there's nothing you can do to knock New York City down. So absolutely, that script was always meant to be a love letter to the city of New York. Wonderful. This is a really great way, I think, to summarize just the end of our talk about Sully in particular. I do have one question I always ask at the end of every podcast. And I know there's lots of people out there who are listening and come to the podcast looking for a bit of writer's advice, but also there's just uh, a bit of solidarity there as well with just struggling through and kind of working through and hoping for your career and all of this stuff. So maybe you could share something that you've learned over the course of your career that you wish you'd known when you were starting out. Well, you can't know it till you go through it. So just, this is more like a, a tour guide who's gone higher up the mountain or deeper down the trail. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way back and I'm saying, Oh, you know, there's grizzlies up ahead. And the writer I'm meeting is like, wait a minute. I was told there's no grizzlies here for 200 years. I'm like, believe me, there's, gri there's grizzlies up ahead. <laughs> so my, my two things, my two grizzlies are, this is absolutely true. No doesn't mean no. It means not now. You have to receive your rejection um, as part of the, the journey towards excellence. It's not always a reflection on how good your material is. It just means not now. So be patient. Keep at it. No, never means no. It just means not now. <clears throat> the other thing is you're going to get your ass handed to you a lot in every possible way. Whether you're at the beginning of your career, middle, end, it doesn't matter. There'll be days that are absolutely heart-wrecking and you'll be completely knocked flat onto the, the canvas of the ring that you're boxing in. And what I learned is that instead of being upset about being punched, instead of being sad about being on the mat, you have to learn that on the mat are vitamins 
that you cannot get anywhere else on planet Earth. There are things you will need to sustain you for the rest of your life on that mat. Receive the mat, embrace the mat, and when you get up, you'll be stronger. You're going to be on the mat a lot of times in your life. The sooner you realize it's not a bad place to be, the better and stronger you become. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for for this advice as well. I, th I think it's going to be really helpful to other people. Todd, thank you so much for, for the conversation today. It's been really enlightening to me. I have a new desire to go and visit New York City at some point as well, which I haven't got to do yet myself. Um, I've only really been in the West Coast of America since I've moved here, but hopefully soon I'll get to, to go as, as things start to open up again. Yeah, before you stop, but let me, let me give you a shout out to you. Phenomenal questions. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I love talking about this stuff. Um, if your screenwriting is as astute as your podcasting, then I look forward to interviewing you one day. <laughs> one day down the line, exactly.